So we know, no doubt, uh, for those of us who um, were, were born in this country and grew up in this country, uh, I think we can recognize what a major shift in our lives it was with the onset of first the, the internet and then on the heels of that uh, social media that came along with it. A really sort of a transformative, changing sort of thing in our culture, in our society that we live in here and really all around the world. And, and social media, no doubt, right, it has its, has its perils, and its flaws, and its risks. But one thing it is really good at is revealing or showcasing the often cruel and denigrating elements of the human psyche. And one of those aspects of the human condition is a burning desire to judge and criticize. Now, I want you to think for me just a moment how, how social media and communication platforms have evolved and the pro- proliferation of those like and dislike buttons, right? Those were such small little additions to these platforms, but they were really satisfying a hunger and an urge and a desire uh, to evaluate, to rate, to criticize, to judge. Our desire to rate and rank. Just take the stroll through uh, any of the comment sections of anything. And you won't have to scroll down too far to find some sort of critique. And when you think about criticism, it's, it's part of living, really, period. You almost can't do anything without being criticized by somebody. And it seems as though the, the ever-present fact is that people are by nature critical, condemning, uh, as could be illustrated by, by this story about a, uh, about a young man who was um, trying to find a wife. So there's a young bachelor, he's, tr- you know, he's trying to find a wife, and every time he would bring his um, prospective wife home, his mother would criticize her unmercifully. You bring one, and she just point out every little thing. And then, okay, let's just try another one, and then, oh, just, just, just really, you know, that's what would happen, and this, this would just go on. And this young man was sort of kind of at his wit's end, didn't know what to do, talked to one of his friends, one of his boys, and his, his friend has some advice for him, says, why don't you find someone like your mother? Right? This, will solve, this will solve it, right? So he looked and looked and looked and looked, and finally he found her, the, the clone, right? Looked like her mother, walked like her mother, talked like his mother, you know, uh, even thought, you know, almost like his mother. Um, you know, perfect in that respect, and he took her home. 
And then later on, when this friend saw, saw him later and said, hey, you know, how did it go? You know, how did, how did your mother like her? And, he, and, the, and the, the young man said, oh, man, it was great. My mother loved her. Right. My father couldn't stand her, though. So a, a critical spirit, right? A judgmental spirit condemning spirit, it almost seems to be a part of the human situation. You look out into the wider media, you look into our social relationships, you look into our schools, you look into our workplaces, it's almost as though we are immersed in it. You know, it's something that we can joke about, but when you're experiencing that, that is an unpleasant thing. There are few things more exhausting or debilitating than harsh and unloving criticism. But what's even more tragic, what's even sadder than that, is that even within the church of Jesus Christ itself, you can find those who would make a habit of criticism and condemnation but when we come to Matthew chapter 7, it seems as though our Lord does not agree. In these opening verses of chapter 7, this final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 here in the Gospel of Matthew, um, Jesus sort of sets the record straight on this tells us how we should deal with our brothers and sisters in this matter of judgmentalism, especially with respect to the fact that we will all undergo a final judgment. Now, without question, um, we've, got, we've touched on some other passages in the Sermon on the Mount that have made their way into um, the the common culture, the common parlance. But I think without question, Matthew 7, 1, it might be the most well-known, one of the most well-known, often quoted verses in the Bible. People that don't even know anything uh, and know little about the context of the Bible or the content of, uh, of the Bible at all, they know this verse. And the reason is it's, it's, it's kind of like a net that you can use to trap anyone at a certain moment. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. And although this is probably recounted so many times again and again and again by all different types of people within the church and without the church, it is so often misunderstood misapplied. Does Jesus really mean that we are never to be discerning? That we are never to evaluate someone's actions? That we are never to judge anyone's behavior? And I think right off the bat that he does not mean this is is pretty obvious if you take the Sermon on the Mount in total. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6. 
Jesus repeatedly calls out the Pharisees and the scribes as what? Hypocrites. And it's not going to stop. We're going to continue through the Gospel of Matthew, and you're going to see that he's going to continue to do that. Even in Matthew chapter 7 itself, in verse 15, Jesus is going to warn us of false teachers, describes them as ravaging wolves who come in sheep's clothing. Now you tell me, all of these verses sounds like there's some sort of discerning going on, doesn't it? Sounds like there's some sort of judge and judgment happening. These are all acts of judgment. So it must mean that Jesus has something else in mind here. That Jesus is distinguishing from acts of judgment and an attitude of judgmentalism. Clearly, God's people are certainly called by the Lord to call sin, sin. That much is clear. We're certainly called by the Lord to discern good from evil, right from wrong. What we are not called to do is to judge people's motives or look down on people in self righteousness with a judgmental spirit. So firstly, the idea is that we're not supposed to relate judgmentally to others. He says, do not judge, that you be not judged. And there's been so much misunderstanding around what he said. People will take these words, do not judge, and take that to mean that in order to be a good Christian, you can never exercise any sort of critical thinking or critical judgment. Some take this verse to say that a model Christian is someone who is totally accepting of all things and all people at all times, no matter what the situation. That somehow Christ-likeness is equated with sort of suspending the use of all your critical functions and it's just an all-accepting sort of blindness. But you know what's really funny? If you look at what the world exalts and what the world elevates and gets attention from the world, the world loves opinionated people. On social media, what, what, what gets pushed up to the front? What gets, what, what, gets, what gets the attention? What gets the clicks? What gets all of that? You know, people, they're the darlings. People who have, who, you know, are super articulate and very dogmatic about some kind of position on whatever it is, right? Politics, art, music, literature, culture, whatever it is. Those opinionated people. The world loves them. But let it come to a matter of individual morality, and then what does the world say? The world would hate an opinionated person in that respect, especially if they represent anything that looks like a Christian ethic. 
In those sort of matters, when it comes to morality, the world adores non-judgmental people. And the ideal Christian is what? An undiscerning, all-accepting person that is living out this misinterpretation of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And we already talked about it. The reason why this cannot be, this text cannot mean that we're never to judge is Jesus has already said, and later on in chapter 7, he's going to warn us, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. How do you figure that out? It's going to require discriminating judgment on our part. And there are many other places in Scripture that call on us as Christians to exercise judgment. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test, we must discern, we must judge. John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus himself says what? Stop judging by mere appearances, but what? Make a right judgment. So Christians have an obligation to exercise critical judgment. But what Christ means when he says, do not judge, is that we have to refrain from hypercritical, condemning judgment. That there is a difference. There's a universe of difference between being discerningly critical and hypercritical. A discerning spirit is constructive. A hypercritical spirit, though, on the other hand, would, would be what? Destructive. The person with a destructive or overcritical spirit, they take a sort of joy in criticism for its own sake, that the criticism itself is the joy. A person like that expects to find fault. And when a critic like this discovers fault in another, they feel a sort of seedy satisfaction, always seeing the worst possible motives in another. Paul says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. We set the standard or the tone for our own final judgment by our judgmental conduct in life. 
See, here's how it goes. We prove by our judging of others that we know what is right. Do we not? We prove by our judging of others that we know what is right. So then, if we don't do what is right, what are we actually doing? We are condemning ourselves. Jesus says in verse 2 of chapter 7, For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. We need to hear those words of Jesus, and we need to apply them to our lives with all of the fearful force that it has. Jesus is actually articulating a principle that he's already talked about, that we've already talked about, when we talked about forgiveness back in Matthew chapter 6. This idea that forgiven people will do what? Forgive. And that those who forgive are surely the forgiven ones. Right? There's a sort of a a synergy or symmetry in that around forgiveness. And for those that refuse to forgive others, that they can expect God to withhold his forgiveness. Chapter 7, verse 1 is sort of rephrasing this, right? Bringing this back to us. That if a person judges others harshly, What can they expect? They can expect a harsh judgment from God. But if someone judges others mercifully, he can expect a merciful judgment from God. See, showing mercy to others, it is really an act of wisdom. When you show mercy... It's an act of wisdom that flows out of the recognition of the mercy God has shown us. But judging harshly then is what? It is an act of foolishness. Because it reveals that you have not understood the grace of God. We come into verses 3 and 4, and we see that we are not to relate to others hypercritically. It says in verses 3 and 4, we can read it again together. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Now, the picture that Jesus presents is intentionally fantastical, right? It's, it's ludicrous. It's as sarcastic as possible, right? And Jesus will do this from time to time, but the reason it is is because he is trying to drive home a very important point, and he's trying to drive it home to you very Clearly, okay? So in this passage, the word that is translated as log, or in other translations is translated as plank, we're talking about a huge piece of wood. We're talking about 
something that's holding up a structure. So imagine one of these, one of these beams here holding up this church. That's the idea of, of the word log. On the other hand, the word speck here is equivalent to like a small piece of sawdust. Now, take the picture that Jesus has given us. With such a monstrous log in, in this man's eye, it's not just that his vision is, you know, it's a little bit, you know, a little bit impaired. No. He is absolutely blinded. So the idea of his lending a helping hand here to this other man who has this little speck of sawdust in his eye, it's not only comical, which it is, it sounds comical, but it's impossible. It's impossible. And it would be only funny if it wasn't so tragic. Because the tragedy is this situation that Jesus is portraying is oh so common. I think of King David at his lowest point morally in his life. He has taken the wife of another. He has committed adultery with her. He has discovered that she was pregnant And then he has the husband murdered. And then Nathan, the prophet of God, comes before him and tells him a story about a rich man who has huge flocks of sheep, who lived next door to a poor man who had just one little lamb that he loved so much. But the rich man, not wanting to take one of his so many sheep to feed some guests, does what? Takes that little lamb from that poor man and slaughters it. And how blind is David? What what is his response? That man deserves to die. That man deserves to die. And Nathan points that finger right back at the king and says what? You, you are that man. David, forget someone else's speck, David. Look at the own log in your eye, David. We find it so easy to turn the microscope on, on another person's sin, while we will look at our sin from a far, far off. When we talk about someone else's sin, we have very strong language, right? We're not afraid to, to, to let it fly, right? But when we talk about our own sin, we have all kinds of euphemisms for it. The language all of a sudden gets, gets a, little more, 
little more measured, a little more subtle. We easily spot that speck of phoniness in another person. Why? Well, because we have so much of it in our own lives. And even more than that, what's interesting is I think often we hate our own faults when we see them in others. That that anger towards that speck in someone else's life, maybe, maybe it comes from a suppressed sort of guilt in ourselves about that same massive sin in our own lives. And, and people who operate in this sort of way, they don't, they don't actually care about the speck in the other person's eye. It's really just an exercise in building themselves up in their own eyes. But Jesus offers us verse 5. It starts off very forcefully, but it does ultimately give us a path. That we're not supposed to engage judgmentally with our brothers and sisters, and we're not supposed to engage hypercritically, but we are rather to be brothers and sisters to each other. So verse 5, what does Jesus say? You hypocrite, he pulls no punches. You hypocrite, first Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, both the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us to do this. It is the teaching of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when we actually do what Jesus has told us, we begin to see people as they are. I'll take you back to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Who is blessed? The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who what? Mourn. Mourn over their own sin, for they will be comforted. When we see ourselves as we really are, then we will be able to see others as they really are. And instead of being critical, what do we do? We weep for ourselves, and then we what? We will weep for them. When we've removed the log from our own eye, what happens? We can see clearly to be able to take the speck out of our brother's and sister's eye. See, Jesus it does not encourage a whatever attitude that we should have toward fellow believers. Jesus does not encourage that. Jesus does want us to discern the struggles in others, but he wants us to see them through clear, self-judged eyes. Eyes that are tender and compassionate. 
Think about the eye for the moment. I don't know if you've ever had any eye trouble or had to go see an eye doctor for anything or ever actually had something stuck in your eye. But if you think about the actual procedure for taking a small speck of something out of the eye, imagine it. That's, it's very difficult, and it's delicate, isn't it? Think about your eye in your body. There's almost nothing in the human body more sensitive than the eye. You don't even have to touch it. What happens when you get close, when someone gets close to your eye? What happens? Closes right up. The instant we touch it, it closes up. So what's required if you're going to clear an eye? What's going to be required? There's, there's a gentleness, a carefulness, a patience, a sympathy for the other person. But if you take all of that, bring that all over and consider the spiritual life. And when it comes to dealing with sin, the care is even more delicate. For what are, we, what are we talking about here? What are we handling? We're talking about a soul. So we have to be humble, sympathetic, conscious of our own sins. Without condemnation, we need God's mercy. If you look back into the Sermon on the Mount, maybe there were times that as we've been going through and we've been studying, you, you thought, these teachings, they're, they're, they are too out there. They're, they're too lofty. They're, they're, they're way, way, they're otherworldly. They're, they're too unrealistic. Maybe you've had that thought. I think some people, as they read the sermon, might have that thought. But on the contrary, they are not. That's not to say that the, the, the ethics of the kingdom on the Sermon on the Mount, they are high. They are difficult. They're, they're sort of challenging in the same way that climbing a mountain is challenging. But they are tangible. And they are realistic. If you go back to chapter 5, Jesus teaches that if you're trying to enter the kingdom, we're not talking about absolute keeping of the law, but what? Humility before God. Sorrow over our sins. In chapter 6, Jesus teaches us a prayer. What is at the center of the petitions of that prayer? Forgive us our debts. So what does Jesus know? We will have debts that we will have to daily ask forgiveness for. And here in chapter 7, <coughs> what is Jesus saying? Really, Jesus is saying that Christian community will be filled with people contending with sin. Some with specks and some with logs. And according to Jesus, even those with logs, bigger or more obvious sins, 
have not only the right, but the obligation to help those with specks, those with little or less obvious sins. That is fascinating, but really it is ultimately beautiful. The call for Christians is to mutually disciple and discipline each other in the Lord. What does Jesus say is the second greatest commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where does that come from? It comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Now, what's interesting is the context in Leviticus where that where that passage comes from. If you read just before Leviticus chapter 19, 18, if you go back to verse 17 and read it in the context, here's what it says. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor or your brother lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people or your brothers, but you shall, what, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the full context in Leviticus. And that phrase there, I don't know if you heard it, reasoning frankly with your neighbor, what is that? If you bring it into the passage we looked at today, reasoning frankly with your neighbor or your brother is that difficult, delicate task of speck removal. (laughs) The loving thing to do, the loving thing to do is to discern rightly and remove sin. What does this involve? One, seeing your brother's sin. Two, helping your brother see his sin. Three, having him lie down, open his eyes wide, and trust you even you with the one-time log in your eye to remove it carefully, caringly. John Chrysostom, an early church teacher in the 4th century, put it this way, correct your brother not as a foe, nor as an adversary exacting a penalty, but as a physician. I think that's a great analogy. I want you to hear me this morning. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we are all physicians in a sense, underneath the great physician, of course, right? And just as if you went to the doctor, and and you 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 would not be taken aback if the doctor said, 
you know, there's something wrong with your eye. We got to do something, and there might be some discomfort as we are going to take care of it. We should not be taken aback by that, right? So in the same way, we should not be surprised by the sins our brothers and sisters see in us, specks that need to be seen and removed for our own spiritual health. It is the loving thing to do. Paul has a lot to say about love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, what does he say? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And if I could add, love judges all things rightly, wisely, and with others' best interests in mind. So I want you to hear this this morning. It is unloving to judge your brother when you have a log in your own eye. It is also unloving to leave a speck in your brother's eye. As we come to close this morning, as a people... As a church, as children of God, we need to be people who speak the truth in love because the love of God controls us. We see the critical spirits all around us. Look on social media, look in the schools, look in our social relationships. But really, but really, it should not be a part of the church. It should not be a part of the church. So we say, we ask, we say to God, God, purge that. Purge that from our lives and from our churches. And it would be a good question for all of us to ask, who have I been critical of? Who have I engaged in this sort of judgmentalist sort of spirit? And then we need to ask God to help us see ourselves as we are. We need to ask. James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, what? Let him ask God who generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. We can ask, God, give me wisdom. Wisdom to help me judge 
matters rightly, to distinguish between right and wrong thinking and living. And what we're asking for as we ask for that wisdom is the same thing that Jesus is instructing all his followers to really ask for, to help me make true, right, and most importantly, loving judgments. Judgments that are in the best interests of others and that I would like others to do for me. That's our call. Our call is to look, but there's a certain ordering to how we look. We look up to God. We look in to ourselves, and then we look out to our brothers and sisters. And it is that sort of looking that leads us to wisdom and right judgment that glorifies God. It brings glory to God in that way. So let's ask God for his wisdom. Lord, Lord, won't you help us? Help us to judge rightly, not for our glory, but for yours. Amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together as we respond to his word.